When everything feels upside down, culture is what holds us together. It's the songs that soundtrack our morning commute and our quarantine living room dance parties, or that beckon us down to the bar to find someone to make out with. It's the shows we binge and the books we read to wind down after a hard day at work, and it's the meals we cook to remember our grandmothers. It's an excuse to get out of the house and go sit in a dark theater on a Saturday afternoon, and a litmus test for finding other people who see the world like we do. It's the thing that gives our lives meaning when it's hard to make sense of anything at all. I'm Andrea Dominic. And I'm Emily Friedlander. Welcome to The Culture Journalist, a podcast about the wild west of culture and culture journalism in the year 2020. Think of it as your guide to understanding the arts, technology, and a shifting labor landscape through the lens of culture reporting. Hosted by us, two freelance journalists from opposite sides of the country. Andrea, do you remember where you were when you found out that South by Southwest wasn't happening this year? Yeah, I think everyone who works in the music industry or adjacent does. And I remember getting a news alert on my phone that said South by Southwest was officially canceled. And I know that's something that had been talked about a little bit, you know, for the preceding week as the pandemic was encroaching. And then it hit and then everything changed. Totally. Both of us have reported on this, like hear a lot about how artists have been really, really devastated. What we don't talk about as much is what's actually happening to the venues, the places that used to welcome them. For those places, the pandemic is what some are calling an extinction level threat. Part of the problem is that we don't know when it will be safe for people to gather in public again. You know, it's probably only going to happen when there's a vaccine. We don't know exactly when the vaccine is coming. But another part of the problem is just sort of the unique economics of running a place like a music venue, which is that you have commercial rent to pay. You have a mortgage. You have all these bills, insurance. They're just stacking up and stacking up and stacking up. But then you can't bring any money through the door. Exactly. And now, six months later, a lot of these programs that are designed to protect businesses and their employees, like the Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP, don't apply to music venues because their employees just can't work. Totally. And this situation has consequences that are almost too upsetting to fathom, especially if you work in music or music is an important part of your life. In a survey by the National Independent Venue Association, an organization of about 2,800 venues, comedy clubs, theaters, etc., across the U.S. that is sort of rallying to help save America's stages, about 90% of independent venues reported that they may have to close permanently in a few months without relief from the federal government. And that's just, I feel like we would be losing, like, for me at least, the soul of our cities and what makes them worth living in. That's right. They're absolutely the soul of our country's culture, and they're the soul of these communities. Uh, On top of that, these are important economic drivers for these communities as well. There was a study out of Chicago last year where for every dollar that was spent on a concert ticket, that generated $12 to the local economy. Because think about it, you're buying food, you're buying drinks. If you're in from out of town, you're getting a hotel room. So the ripple effects of these venues being closed goes far beyond, you know, kind of just the sentiment of, oh, well, we love live music, you know? Yeah, and that's why what we're going to talk about today is both so important and so fascinating because... The fight to 
save live music in America has actually become this the rare bipartisan political issue. That's right. They've been doing a lot of work lobbying Congress, trying to get a couple of different new protection plans in place that will help protect small businesses like these. The other really interesting thing about this situation is that NEVA, again, that's the National Independent Venue Association, is about as old as the pandemic. This is a historically very competitive, very, let's say, not collaborative kind of industry just because of the fact that they're running on these thin margins. But, you know, within the first month of the pandemic, you saw NEVA form. And now on the national level, they have have sent a letter to Congress that's signed by over 600 artists, including Billie Eilish, Lady Gaga, James Murphy. And they've also gotten uh, vocal support, including a few op-eds written by folks like Amy Klobuchar and Chuck Schumer. And today we're talking to two voices in the fight to save America's stages. One of them is James Moody, founder of the Mohawk in Austin, Texas, a venue that is beloved locally and that many people from around the world hang out at when South by Southwest happens. We're going to talk to James about his experiences since that fateful day when we found out that South by Southwest wasn't happening and what it's been like for him as an operator of one of these businesses on the ground. We are also going to be talking with Audrey Fix Schaefer, who is Director of Communications at Neva, as well as Director of Communications for Washington, D.C.'s iconic 930 Club. We'll be talking to her about why the fate of live music in this country rests in part on an upcoming vote in Congress. And we'll also be talking with her about how the crisis has brought a notoriously competitive corner of the music industry together for bipartisan success. I'd like to introduce our guest, James Moody. He is the owner of the iconic Mohawk venue in Austin, Texas, and has been active in the Austin scene and efforts for organizing around independent venues. James Moody, thank you so much for coming on the show. Howdy. Thanks for having me. For people who might not be familiar with the Mohawk, tell us a little bit about that space and a bit about yourself and your background in the Austin music scene. Uh, the Mohawk is at the corner of 10th and Red River. So for people that go to South by Southwest, they kind of know that Red River is kind of the epicenter of, uh, you know, it's one of the last contiguous live music streets in the, in the nation. Um, so there's a number of venues on that street where you can kind of see a wide variety of shows and different genres and styles in one night. Um, we are at bookend at the end of that street um at 912 red river and we're uh, almost 15 years old we started that business in 2006 we uh, are kind of uh like a weird amphitheater that's been built out of a mexican restaurant called el charo from the 50s and we have you know thousand cap shows and then we have an inside stage for kind of helping incubate smaller bands local bands smaller tours and then bigger shows outside before they graduate onto the, you know, the sort of big boy venues. So it's a really nice spot for us because we get to see really interesting music at that size. Mm-hmm. Can you give a rundown of maybe some of the the bands that have played there over the years? Oh, Lord have mercy. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's so hard. Uh, Iggy Pop, Wu-Tang Clan, um, Bill Callahan, Britt Daniel, who is, you know, friends of y'all's, friends of mine, um, with his band Spoon, um, Public Enemy, Daniel Johnson, is just kind of, it's so hard to even name them because um, most of the best shows are not even big names mm-hmm. um, that people may not even know. Um, but we have at all, you know, the big names from, you know, 
Black Keys have played there, The Roots have played there, Questlove has DJed there, um, Green Day gets drunk in the green room kind of thing. It's just a weird, <laughs> weird room that a lot of people have been through at one time or another. It's just a musician's venue, but it's also a stage manager's venue, a sound engineer's venue. It's just a place for people to do their thing, and we've done it in all sizes. And it's kind of um, known for both hosting larger acts that are coming through town and then also for kind of incubating smaller emerging acts, whether they're coming through town on tour or locally. Yeah, the smaller acts are really more of what we're about. A lot of people will tell you that have a lot of experience with Mohawk that they have more memorable, special experiences on the inside stage because that's where you're discovering music as opposed to rediscovering it when they get bigger, right? So when we opened, we weren't known at all. A big band would never play there because we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't have the right sound equipment. We didn't even have a cover over the stage. Sometimes the power would cut off in the middle of the show. And I'd have to stand by the power, the grid, and turn it back on. And then if it turned off, we'd have to kick it back on again, like to keep the lights on for the show. So mm-hmm. it was not not the kind of place where bigger bands would even want to play when we first started. So to answer your question, it was very much about discovery. I mean, St. Vincent used to play on the inside stage often um, mm-hmm. before she was St. Vincent. Um, so... It, that is really what we're known for is the smaller uh, bands or, you know, local bands and bands that are kind of getting their start. So you're kind of the perfect person to talk to about what venues are going through right now. Not only is your venue located kind of right in the heart of America's music capital or one of its biggest music capitals, but you're also located in Ground Zero in terms of the pandemic's destabilization of the music industry. Everyone who works in music remembers that day in early March this year when they read the headline that South by Southwest was going to be canceled this year. What did hearing that news feel like on the ground? Well, it was a huge blow. Uh, I don't know if we knew initially what it really meant because without dramatizing is like we're so used to struggle on Red River. We're so used to things happening and us needing to react and, and sort of work through it. And so our reaction before we let it really settle in how serious it was, our reaction was to try to recover because we didn't know scientifically really what was going on. Mm-hmm. So our instinct was what we always do when there's challenges. We tried to rally and tried to host smaller shows just because all these bands were coming in town and South by is such an economic engine for everyone. We were trying to make sure our bands and our bartenders and our staff was able to just have a job, right? That was our original instinct. And how, how long did you think these circumstances were going to last? Oh gosh. I mean, at that time, you know, you have to try to be, an optimist and a a realist when you've never experienced anything like that. I don't think there's any, any way that you would automatically say, okay, we're in this for six or 12 months. We were thinking we were in that for four weeks. Mm. I remember that. Yeah. Like, Oh, if we just close, if we just kind of lie low for a couple weeks, then it will go away. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It was like, well, if the right thing to do is to, you know, slow down large gatherings, then we're like, great, we'll shut down our outside stage and we'll just do intimate small shows. So it was a very gradual way of coming to the realization that gathering in general was a problem, right? We didn't even know the details on transmission. And I don't even think the venue community understood the science until probably April or May. You know, as someone who's operating a business, what was the impact of then having to either lose or just greatly reduce something that's a huge driver for the city and the venue like South by Southwest? Well, that was unfortunately the beginning of millions and millions of lost dollars for our economy and specifically 
you know, hitting right in the heart of the creative class. Um, we just didn't know that it was going to be so significant. So it kind of revealed itself in layers where South by was the first major hit to the economy, all of that tourism money and everything that goes with it. There are so many adjacent industries that benefit from the movement, the music industry in Austin. We're like inextricably linked to the success of almost everything. If you think about hotels, if you think about real estate in general, just residential and commercial, if you think about hospitality, restaurants. And so you pull South by Southwest out of that and the ripple effect is massive. And then if you shut the venues down and keep them shut, it becomes a tsunami. Mm. After South by, what was the rest of this year supposed to look like for you? What does a summer running a music venue in Austin mean or, or yield for the community? We're we're used to being scrappy, right? Our our world is really tough. We work on really thin profit margins. Almost everyone is in this business for love of the game. Very few people are making money in it. Um, they just do it because they love it. And they'd like to make a living at it. So when all this happened, what you'll find is most people will tell you venue operators shifted into how do I operate a clean venue to how do I do streaming? Should I do streaming? Let me try to put together a streaming program. And then, oh, shit, people don't like streaming. And then, you know, uh, let me move the show that I had booked uh, two months down the road. And then, oh, shit, let me move that show four months down the road. You know, let, let's keep moving the goalpost on reopening. At this point, most venues our size are looking at early next year. You know, the people working at venues have been overreacting, underreacting, you know, just two constant waves of new science and data, trying mm -hmm. to be responsible, right, by staying closed. Um, but they've been getting hurt the most because restaurants at least have been able to work at partial capacity, right? Music venues have not. So uh, by now, we've probably lost all of our staff because we've encouraged them to, you know, go find other jobs. Mm. Right. I wish I could tell you there's one thing that we've done, but we've, like all venue operators, we've moved from model to model and option to option to try to figure this out along the way. You know. So you can't throw shows really right now, but then that doesn't mean that you don't have expenses, right? Like what are some right. of the factors that are sort of all stacking up at once yeah. for venue owners? So here's the truth of what's happening to a lot of people out there is we're starting to get, I'm sure you guys have seen across the country, these early indicators, right? Which are venues that are reading the field and saying, white flag, it's over, we have to close. That's starting to happen. Um, but there's a number of people that are holding their breath relative to hope or maybe private sector investment or maybe hoping the government will help them. Uh, the government programs have started to arrive and they're not as helpful as people might have hoped, right? So there's not enough there because to your point, most people have either abated their rent tried to vacate their rent or just tried to push their rent into a different lease agreement to buy mm -hmm. them time. But that money still adds up. The clock is still ticking for most people. Very few landlords are just forgiving things. Electric bills remain, even though we're not operating there. Um, utilities remain. There are just certain insurance remains, right? There are certain things from an overhead standpoint that you're just bleeding money while you wait. I think we rightfully should point fingers at our government. I know locally could have done a better job of reacting to this just because what we do is so closely tied to our brand and what we promise to tourists, right? So we have a good reason in Austin to say this is worth protecting. But once you move beyond that and you start looking in the mirror at what we could do, I think we'll find that the, the, the venue model, the traditional live music venue model, I don't think as an industry we've adapted quick enough in that we weren't, none of us were ready for, to take a punch this big. 
and you know you can't be ready for a pandemic so you know don't get me wrong on that but what i'm saying is it taught us a lesson that we should have been ready to take on you know at least some of this and we work on such thin margins that i think if if we were to open in the future we would want our venue model to be more capable by having better and more diverse revenue streams instead mm -hmm. of you know instead of most people own their venue or lease their venue for 24 hours a day right they have they have control of it 24 hours a day but they're only monetizing it for what five hours a day mm -hmm. right? right so how can you optimize your real estate still service the creative community and make sure that you're doing some day business, you know, that you're really looking at your e-commerce and your digital relationship and kind of reorganizing your business to have more diverse revenue streams so you can handle more storms in the future. I think that's a healthy thing to do is to, you know, not only physically renovate if you're forced to be closed and you can afford it, but then also renovate your business model. So if you do come out of this that you come out stronger right right like you were saying it for the live industry as a whole most independent venues are kind of operating on thin margins like even in the best of times so it's it's exactly it's an inherently fragile situation and you know i imagine that the the red river arts district where the mohawk is located looked very different than it does today when mohawk first opened in 2006 you know, what are some of the other forces at play that have made this a challenging time for live music spaces in the city even before the pandemic hit? Well, yeah, we've been fighting that fight since the day we arrived. We we clearly didn't do our research when we decided to open the venue. Um, you know, yeah. there was there was over 200 venues in the urban core. And so it's like, why would you enter into wow. a market like that? But we did. Um and, you know, so then you have to find ways to differentiate and all of that. That street has always been amazing. I mean, that street has had every different kind of music you could ever imagine, you know, where on, in one night you could see, you could see, uh, you know, like an 80s goth show, a country western show, a thrash metal show and a hip hop show on the same street within yards of each other. Um, so very special place, but it was developed off of pretty cheap rents. That's why that street developed, because when they first started there, that's where people could afford to try venues out, right? As Austin has grown, unfortunately, that street went from being on the outskirts to being dead center in the central business district. And we started having hotels and apartment buildings drop in in the middle of Red River. And we thought they never would because it's so dang loud, right? Like, there's no way people would want to you know, stay there. And they did it anyway. And so it increases property values. And then your landlord starts inching up your rent. Your margins are already thin. And so it starts squeezing out, you know, creative operators. Um, so what we did, and when I say we, there's a lot of us that worked on this, but we started fighting to create um, not only organizations that work on our behalf, um, lobbying groups to communicate with the city and the state, um, but we started working on creating a district, which you mentioned, and we achieved that, of, gosh, I don't know, it was probably five or six years ago. But we created the Red River Cultural District. It was recognized by the city, and it just got recognized by the state like last week uh, as a Texas cultural arts district. And the reason that's important is if you create boundaries around an area, you can then send incentives and support to an area. If it if it doesn't have boundaries, then there's no way to capture, you know, uh, programs. Or there's no way to work with city or state to say, you know, let's use parking revenue or uh, let's be creative about how to help this district. So once you create a district, you can qualify for support and protection over time. So it, you know, it, we've had to evolve from just being kind of a rock and roll place that doesn't give a shit to having to be savvy in government and politics in order to survive. Mm. Um, and that's just a necessary 
part of the process if we want to stay downtown. Do you think that the city and state government realize how important music is to the local economy? Not to the degree. It's a question of degree. So, yes, I think they realize that it's part of our history. Um, I don't know how much they realize that it is the oil beneath our soil uh, because we've diversified so much in Austin um, over the years where we've gotten deep in other industries, right? Much stronger in tech and manufacturing. Um, you know, we're developing our own soccer stadium and soccer team now. Um, our real estate is all done really well. Our restaurants and our food scene in the past five years have really taken off. So the good thing about the Austin economy is that it's diversified, but it's easy to fall in the trap of arguing that music is kind of an emotional bond thing for the city um, because, you know, people tend to talk in those terms where they remember seeing Stevie Ray Vaughan play at Antones, and that's the reason we should save it. That's really, it's really good, but it's not the reason. The reason is the economies of live music are exponentially impactful on the rest of the Austin economy. I mean, what music does for schools and tax revenue is, um, it's amazing how much money our music venues generate just by being there because not only are we attracting tourists from around the world for, I don't know how many festivals, you guys know more than I do about that, but we're doing so much more than that in jobs because we're operating every day when those festivals aren't there. And when Google or BMW or Tesla or Apple decides to consider Austin, their HR departments are telling their employees that they're mm -hmm. moving to a place that has live music every night, mm -hmm. right? We're inextricably linked to almost every reason to build a huge condo project, a huge hotel project when they are pitching their decks to their investors. They've got pictures of my logo and the Continental Club logo and the Antones logo in every investor deck that's moving around behind closed doors. Mm -hmm. so, so without that, you know, what is your reason to believe? Like you're saying, this isn't, this isn't just a sentimental thing that we want to hold on to live music spaces, but there's a, there's a statistic I saw that I think for every dollar that's spent on a concert ticket, it generates $12 into the local economy. Guaranteed. Yeah. It, the studies are, you know, the studies show it every time is that um, locals, locals, when they buy a live music ticket, they also buy, a beverage either at that venue or at another one they also buy a meal that night right mm -hmm. but tourists buy a hotel room and sometimes tourists end up buying a house they end up moving there because they went to south by and fell in love with the city and that's why i've been communicating along with all of my colleagues recently to say hey let's really do the math you know nashville is giving more money to their venues when they have less venues than we do um, you know, there's mm -hmm. just some easy ways to look at how to take your CARES funding and make sure you're tying it to the things that support your economy. And we haven't done a good job of it. I don't know if you guys saw that article that just came out this week, but it basically says Austin venues question, you know, Austin's leadership. They've lost faith because our programs, I think we've issued $600,000 in relief which if you divide that up across all the venues in need, it's just, I don't want to say it's nothing, but I will say it's not enough. Even with this monetary relief, there are still very, very harsh financial realities right now. What needs to happen if venues are going to survive? Uh, well, what's happening is the, the government is hoping that the private sector kicks in and saves it. Mm. at the local level. And that now I will say the private sector has been pretty amazing. We've got some examples of angel investors. And also, if you just look at the GoFundMes, 
you're basically asking your community and your, you know, your concert goers to save your venue or to bridge your venue, right? But even though that's, those are really nice stories, you can't go fund me your way out of this problem. And you can't mm-hmm. ask the private sector to do everything. If we're going to talk about stimulus, I understand that live music venues may not be an appropriate target for stimulus in another city. But in our city, given our history and given our brand name, we should be one of the first items on the stimulus. And we haven't been. There needs to be a little bit of a push-pull that says this is not just putting, you know, throwing money down a well. This is a stimulus package that is tied to venues and putting them on a path to recovery mm-hmm. and that will work together with the city and city programs to run safe venues, to market uh, appropriately when it's time for people to come back to shows, to, you know what I mean, work programs where we get venues back on their feet, where we help them reorganize their model, as I said earlier, so they can be more profitable in the future. Mm. Um, so there needs to be a combination of groups like Neva saying, yes, we now have the year of all these venues. Um, if we get appropriate funding, then we can work together with venues to make sure those are sustainable investments and not just you know, throwing money at an industry that's going to fade away. sense of about how many or what percentage of Austin venues have already closed or facing closure right now? Now, you know, I wish there was a public database. It's all very close to the vest, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Each individual, they're not going to be talking publicly about what they're going through. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I said, last week, two of my favorite venues just decided to go out to GoFundMe and they're six Mm -hmm. months in, right? So Elysium, and Don's Depot were out on GoFundMe. And then uh, this is not a music venue, but Cap City Comedy Club closed yesterday permanently. And they've been around, you know, for a long time. Um, so you're just starting to see this sort of first wave. Uh, Barracuda, who's like a brother venue to us, they closed early because they were just reading, reading the field. And I just think the longer this stretches out, the more you're going to see people drop out at different times. Everybody has different pain threshold and they have a different goal set. Um, For us, we're gonna try to make it to the beginning of next year. Our choice was to hold and try to renovate our venue. If you've only got so much air left, you have to be real careful about how you use it. I just wanna go back to something that you brought up earlier, which is how you know the independent venue community especially is pretty cutthroat. Right. You know, everyone's having to compete against each other, yet organizations like Neva are seeing, you know, over 2,000 venues come together in a matter of a couple of months to help support each other in a totally unprecedented way. So how, how have you seen the pandemic bring people together? Well, I mean, that's a great example, right, is like, uh, if you can find a galvanizing pain point, which we did. I think it's easy for everyone to put their differences aside. This idea of wanting to be in the live music business and wanting to have an industry here is what galvanized everyone because a lot of people, it's the only thing they want to do for the rest of their lives. Mm. Um, So why would they start looking for another job? It's not that kind of job. So when you threaten that, that's a hugely galvanizing moment. And that's where you saw people pivot to, trying to work together as soon as possible and as much as possible. We've been trying to use our social media audience, um, which is around 100,000, to communicate NEVA initiatives, challenges to City Hall, awareness on editorial about what's happening in other cities. So we've just tried to use our digital voice while we've stayed closed to help. It's something that I've been seeing across 
the industry, not just with venues, but also, for example, with artists, this kind of sense that people are getting into politics yeah. across the board. Musicians are forming unions, for example. Yeah. And it's funny because a lot of the music people are not always politics people, but they've become politics people. Yeah, that's, you know, I mentioned to y'all earlier in the conversation that we started Austin Music People. I guess it was like eight or 10 years ago. I'll be corrected on that. But it was three groups, four groups that started it that didn't like each other, really, like didn't get along very well. Mm. But we all, we all loved the live music industry. And so we started Austin Music People as a lobbying force to communicate with the city and state government because we realized that a lot of programs were getting benefit and we were being taken for granted. So you'll get like, you know, hotel tax programs that are exclusively tied to protecting museums with no relationship to what music does for the arts community, right? And so we had to develop a voice because what the arts community did really well and the music community didn't was they had an organized voice. You'll find the arts communities are really great at communicating with the government and participating in programs. The music community never had a strong political voice or strong lobbying groups because we were too busy going to shows. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's a great point. I wish I could say it differently, but it's true. Do you expect that this organization um, and sense of community that the pandemic has spurred will continue to linger in the industry even after, you know, hopefully this is all resolved? Yeah, because the pandemic's, you know, not the problem or not all of the problem, let's say, right? A lot of the stuff that people are arguing for is systemic to improving the industry, being recognized short and long term. So, yes, there's a lot of short-term arguments that are happening right now, but we could be doing a much better job at the city, state, and federal level in protecting, in labeling live music as an important art function for American culture, right? We just don't. Not being organized ultimately has hurt us in moments like this. So if we lose 60, 70, 80% of our venues, the ones that are left are going to have to, you know, be the incubators for the next round, right? And I think that that could be a galvanizing moment to make sure that those places are protected. James Beauty, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your experience with us. And, uh, you know, big fans of Austin, the Mohawk and what you do. And, um, you know, best of luck to everything. We hope to see you on the other side. Hey, we're big fans of you guys because we don't have a voice right now. So please keep doing what you're doing because we need your help. All right. After the break, we'll be talking to Neva's Audrey Fix Schaefer about what's happening on the ground in Washington, D.C. to save America's stages. In the meantime, if you like what we're doing here on The Culture Journalist, Head to our Substack and subscribe. That's free, or you can sign up for a paid plan if you want to help support the independent journalism that we're doing. You can also head to Apple Podcasts if you give us a star rating or leave any kind of review, and we thank you for all of your support. Hey guys, so we are back now with Audrey Fix Schaefer. She is the Director of Communications for the legendary 930 Club in Washington, D.C., And she's also Director of Communications for the National Independent Venue Association, or NEVA. Audrey, we are so happy to have you on the show today. Oh, thank you so much for having me and putting attention on the things that we're going to be talking about. Sure. Um, So tell us a little bit about your background in the music industry and with the 930 Club. Actually, uh, I came to the music industry about just a dozen years ago. Before that, I was a corporate suit with the musical taste of a petulant 17-year-old and would love to go 
work all day long and go from the boardroom, then go pick up my kids and go to the 930 Club because we shared the same taste in music and always wanted to discover more. And when my big telecom company was going to be merging with another big telecom company, I started to think, hmm, what do I want to do next? And uh, the only thing I could think of was music. Tell us a little bit more about that venue and its role in the music community there. Sure. Well, I fell in love with the club the first time I went, and it's in its second location right now. And it was in a part of town that you wouldn't dare go to. It was a 200-person venue that was notorious for smelling awful, rat-ridden, and people couldn't wait to get in there to see bands like Nine Inch Nails and Green Day, Nirvana. They would have acts back-to-back that were just crazy, like um, Fugazi played, and then the next night, Tony Bennett played. Well, when our uh, owner bought it, it was a gospel radio station, WUST, but we found out years later that that building originally was Duke Ellington's. And oh, wow. so that, wow. that's got some pretty crazy musical history. But they had just developed such a community of people who were wanting to discover new music and had incredible taste and took risks that it just was a, an island unto its own. It is still legendary for up-and-comers. Emerging bands want to play there and, and have their passport stamped by coming to the 930 Club and legends come back to play. What was it like for you in the venue when news of the pandemic arrived? Oof. It was literally six months ago today. Mm. I was in my dentist's chair. I was having my teeth cleaned and my cell phone was in my hand, of course, because I can't not have that. Mm -hmm. And I got an alert that the mayor of Washington, D.C. was going to be uh, declaring a state of emergency for the city because of the pandemic. And I was, of course, alarmed. So I rushed back. And that night, I mean, that day, a handful of us got around a table. It was our COO, our CFO, director of marketing, the bookers for all of our venues, and myself just trying to figure out, oh my gosh, we, we, because we're booked just about every single night and we have four venues. So we all were around the table saying, oh my gosh, who who do we have coming this week? What are we going to do? And so we made a really, really hard decision to shut all of our venues after that night. We just felt like that was the responsible thing to do. That last night we had Dead Kennedys play and I went, um, one, because I'd never seen them. And two, I had a feeling it would be a while before I saw something else. That's six months ago. We, since then, it was determined that no music places can open in Washington, D.C. Um, until there's a vaccine. And clearly, nobody knows when that's going to be. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, and to say that out loud gives me a, a stomach ache every time. And we understand, you know, health and safety comes first. But uh, we are in a struggle for survival right now. How did you get involved with Neva? Two weeks after, maybe early April, I got a text from a woman named Dana Frank, who is the owner of First Avenue in Minneapolis, which is where Prince got his start. And I had met her very briefly at uh, a conference. And I got a text from her saying, hey, Audrey, you live in Washington, D.C., you must know some lobbyists. If we don't lobby for help, we're all going to go under. And I kind of laughed when I saw that text. It would be like, hey, somebody who lives in L.A., I've got a script. You must know a star and a director. Can you give it to them? And that's what it felt like. But, you know, in the end, yeah, I live in D.C. And, yeah, I know lobbyists. It's 
I do. <laughs> Turns out I'm the stereotype. So um, she and I talked and I said, I'm happy to help you. Let's see what we could do. And while we started to gather a list of names of lobbyists for us to interview, she was able to secure money to fund it because that's not an inexpensive endeavor. And she got with Revan Moose. He's got a marketing firm, the Marauder Group, a music marketing firm. And together with Revan Moose and a handful of other independents, started to form the inklings of this association. And it came together very quickly because we were all in tremendous fear of what comes next. And uh, the first week that we sent out a, an email to the uh, every all the venues that participated in Independent Venue Week in the last two years, and within a week we had 350 members and we were blown away. And we're up at 2,800 members now in every single state in Washington, D.C., and you know it has to be an existential crisis for these type A, fiercely independent, um, dedicated to individualism folks come together. And the result of it has been phenomenal. We have been a support group for one another because nobody else really knows what we're going through. And keep in mind that these are also competitors. In normal times, they're fighting for shows against each other, but now we're fighting for survival together. We want to keep this going until we get resolution in Congress, because it's not just that I don't want my business to go down. I don't want all these other people who I've now connected with and understand that they have the same challenges and pain. I don't want them to go down. And it drives us all. You've also been vocal about the fact that live music industry was not only the first industry to shut down as a result of the pandemic, but it will also be one of the last to reopen, if not the last to reopen. What about the live music industry makes it particularly vulnerable? The concert experience cannot be takeout or delivery. You have to come in and we can't sell it online. We can't open at partial capacity and not lose more money. The only thing worse than being completely shuttered would be for us to open up at, say, 25% capacity. And that's because it costs so much to run these places and to have the staff come in. And what artist is going to work for 25%? I don't blame them because it's really expensive to mount a, a tour and the production and the, the sound and lights and all of that. And they're also not going to tour until there's some type of uniformity of opening across the country. Because if they're allowed to be in one state and then they have to drive through six to get to the only other state that you can be in, you know, that's obviously economically not feasible for them. And even when it is safe to fully open up, it's going to take at least four months for calendars to be able to be filled because of the intricacies of planning a tour. I mean, obviously, there's like a broad spectrum of expenses for these venues, depending on like size and ownership and all that. But is just just to give us a sense of just sort of what the drain is right now while you guys are closed, what's sort of the median monthly expense just to have a club right now? There's such a swath of expenses. I know of one that pays $100,000 a month just for the rent on their place. Wow. And I know another that's losing a million dollars a month. Jeez. Wow. Whatever it is, their universe has turned upside down and all their economics are upside down. And keep in mind that these are entrepreneurs. They're individual mom and pop businesses that have fought so hard in such a competitive landscape in with thin margins and have been able to get past each of the economic challenges that they've been given, whether it was the recession, changes in styles of music, the terrible tragedies when people have been shot in music venues, and every other kind of crisis, they've been able to rejigger. This is a time when they absolutely cannot because of being completely shut down. And that's why 
we've gone to Congress to explain our story because honestly, we've never done it before. We've never had to explain how we operate our businesses and why the PPP program that has worked so well for other industries does not work for ours. Why isn't the PPP a good fit for venues? The payroll protection program was very well-meaning and it was done at a time where everybody thought this would be like a two-month deal. And it's worked for a lot of industries. Unfortunately, it doesn't work for ours because we don't have employees now. So the PPP is meant to keep people on the payroll who are already on the payroll as opposed to you can't really do that when there's no staff to hire or no work for them to perform. Right. You have to be able to have employees to pay in order to have the PPP loan forgiven. Because we, we're not allowed to have employees, basically, there, we cannot fulfill that. What we need is help with the fixed overhead, which is so enormous. As I was saying, rent, utilities, mortgage, insurance, all of those expenses that do not stop. And so what we've asked for is to be able to have that, uh, the percentages uh, not apply so that we would be able to use that money on that fixed overhead so we can get through and be able to reopen when it is safe. And yeah, can you explain, so what exactly is the Restart Act and how is it different exactly? Well, there two pieces of legislation that we are really endorsing and hope will get passed. One is the Restart Act, and that is a variation on PPP that does not curtail whether you're using it for employees or for fixed overhead. It recognizes the fact that in order for us to survive this, that we've got to be able to cover our rent until we can reopen and then hire our employees back. The other that we are a big proponent of is the Save Our Stages Act, and that was written specifically for music, comedy, and theater venues with the recognition that we're going to need grants to help us through it. And the Save Our Stages Act is, as Restart is too, both have got bipartisan support, and that is such a rarity nowadays. I don't have to tell anybody that Mm. because this really isn't just about music or entertainment. It's about the local economy. Mm-hmm. So that lets legislators know what's in it for them, what's in it for their communities. That if they help us see our way through on the other side of this, we can be part of the economic renewal for their towns. If they don't, then there's going to be a lot of boarded up venues and then the ripple effect unfortunately, for their towns will only hasten. That makes a lot of sense. And I've seen that Neva and Save Our Stages have gotten some pretty high-profile support from politicians. Amy Klobuchar, she wrote an op-ed about it for Rolling Stone. She did. And then there was an event recently with Chuck Schumer outside of Babies All Right in uh, Brooklyn, New York. What sorts of obstacles or challenges do you foresee there being in getting this passed in the first place? Well, I could tell you we've got tremendous support for it. There are 144 co-sponsors on this bill, the Save Mm -hmm. Our States Act, which is an incredible number. And as I say, it's bipartisan. The biggest stumbling block right now is Congress. They can't come to an agreement on the overall COVID package and they keep going away. Like we thought for sure they would come to an agreement on the next phase before 4th of July and they didn't. And they went Mm -hmm. back home and then they came back and we thought, okay, they've got to get this done before their August recess. And they didn't. And they left again. And it's like we're being abandoned, but it's not just us. It's our employees. It's the whole nation's employees that are dependent upon this next overall COVID relief package. We're feeling very good about us getting folded into whatever it is they could come to an agreement on. Mm -hmm. But just yesterday, all the talk was about how 
the Republican Senate bill didn't pass. And so no, now nobody's talking to each other anymore. I'm like, come on, people. The nation is depending on you. Yeah. And here's the thing. Every day that goes by, I'm getting emails about another venue or two that have just had to call it quits. They just cannot Mm. hold on any longer. And time is the enemy right now. I don't know who else has to scream out loud, but I'm frightened about them taking so long to get to it that so many venues are going to go under and they're not, you cannot bring them back. Do you have any sense of how many venues we've lost over the past six months? How many have shuttered permanently? I don't have a figure for you. I can tell you that it's in the hundreds and it's happening more and more. And the longer it takes Congress to get their act together on this, the more and the faster it's going to happen. I was just talking to a fellow who runs Birdland. It's been around for 70 years, hosting blues and jazz. Those are art forms that are purely American homegrown, incredible exports that are national treasures. The the gentleman who owns it now is in his mid-70s. And if this funding doesn't get passed by October, he's probably not going to continue. Because can you imagine the rent on an empty venue on 42nd Street and not being able to sell a ticket? And this is this man's retirement. It doesn't matter that it's been around 70 years. He can't continue. And Paul Rizzo from The Bitter End, where Lady Gaga got her start, I think Billy Joel did too. It's a staple for where so many up-and-comers, you know, start. He also said that if if something doesn't uh, get passed soon, he's going to have to be out. He doesn't have a choice. I saw that Neva recently announced a partnership with YouTube that's focused around programming that will help bring live music back to venues safely, as well as raise funds for the Neva Emergency Relief Fund. What's the role of the private sector in this fight? There's a emergency relief fund that Neva members can apply for, and that is for us to try to help those most at risk from being evicted from their venues because this has been going on for six months. So this is hoping to be a stopgap until we get the funding. And we are grateful that YouTube has wanted to help us generate awareness for that. Can you talk a little bit more about what the role of the private sector has been beyond YouTube? Like what other partnerships you're seeing and and other kinds of collaboration and support? Well, I would say the seed money that we got in order to be able to hire our lobbyist came from several companies, C-Tickets, Light, and E-Tix. We've also gotten a lot of support from organizations like the RIAA and Spotify, Sound Exchange. And so they have been really supportive in terms of writing Congress on our behalf, saying that how we are part of the ecosystem for all of their businesses as well. Mm-hmm. But the, the other thing is artists have been incredibly supportive and you know, they are us and we are them. The 600 of them signed a letter to Congress asking Congress to pay attention to what Neva is requesting because without these small independent venues, they would not have gotten their careers going. And they're concerned about when it is time to get back on the road, will we still be here? Artists don't start in stadiums. They start in their neighborhood spots. And it is such a crucial part of their ecosystem. Just like the coral reef, once they go, there's no bringing them back. Mm. Right. The the other thing I would say is that, um, you know, John Cornyn, the Republican from Texas, you know, you, you wouldn't think that he and Amy Klobuchar would agree on very much, uh, but this is something that they are both incredibly passionate about because they understand 
the role that music plays in the culture of their states, but also the economic generators that we are. It's not even bipartisan. It's nonpartisan. It's not red. It's not blue. It's green. Mm. On that note, you know, we were talking earlier about how the music industry has existed a little bit separately from politics or kind of outside of the whole lobbying world of D.C., what aspects of the live music industry do you think has made it well-equipped to have had this much success and to have organized to be involved in politics? I love that question because it's something that I had to stop and think about a couple of times through this process because none of us have done this before. But this is the biggest conglomeration of type A driven people you will ever want to be around. They are used to challenges. They're used to having to fight and scratch and claw to be able to get what they want and need. And they're incredibly creative. If there's this bump in a road, they'll find a way around it six different ways. Mm. And so it is that type of personality and determination and belief that we, we have to storm that hill. We're going to storm that hill. The public policy committee that was formed, we had carved up the country into 47 precincts. And each has got a precinct captain who organized all the venues in their precinct to have them be aware of all the issues and come together to contact their congressperson. The other thing I would say is one of the first things that we did was to set up the website saveourstages.com. So we could give our customers and other people who care about their independent stages a place to be able to email their local legislators easily. We've gotten nearly 2 million emails sent. Wow. And it has been persistent since we set it up. That's also because we've got something that is absolute gold, and that's our email lists, where Mm -hmm. normally... We send those emails out once a week to tell people about the new show that's going to be coming to town and here's how and when you buy the ticket. Instead, we've had to email them and say, listen, you know we're closed. We are in trouble. We need your help. Can you please write a a quick email or, or text or however you want to contact your congressperson? Please do. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you know, how can people get involved? Um, But it sounds like that's what um, you'd recommend. Absolutely. Go to saveourstages.com. And again, it's really fast. It's 30 seconds. You can write either any message that you want to write or there's one in there ready for you to go. Other things they could do is if you have a venue that you really love and you want to support them, buy a gift card, knowing that your hope that they will be able to to reopen. And it's a way to say that I'm going to invest in you and hope for the day that I can come through your doors and relive all those types of memories that I've always enjoyed at that venue. Mm -hmm. The other thing they could do is if there's a show that's canceled, they can opt not to ask for a refund if they're in a financial position to do so. Why should people outside of the music industry care about this? Or what would you tell someone who maybe has no understanding of the inner workings of the live music scene? How will our lives change if this doesn't come through? There's a really compelling reason why people who never go to see concerts should care about keeping their local venues operating. And that's because these venues are economic magnifiers and triggers for the neighborhood. So for every dollar that's spent at a music venue, $12 is spent on area businesses. And for the health of the the community, the financial health, you're going to want to have these venues reopen again. Otherwise, it's not just the music venue that will be shuttered, but the restaurant and that's down the block will be gone. The the retail shops, the bookstores, whatever's on that block or the next three blocks over are going to be harmed. And that part hits everybody. On the upside, if this investment is made, 
then we can be part of the economic triggers going forward when it is safe for everybody to get back to real life. On a closing note, I just want to say it, it's really remarkable what you guys have been doing, uh, not only just by dint of its effort, but you, you know we're really seeing at, at one of the greatest moments of strife in America, we are seeing democracy in action through what you're doing via grassroots effort that is leading to bipartisan consensus. Like it's kind of wild. So, you know, hats off to you guys. I thank you. It has taken a lot of care and concern and precision and, and keeping in mind that most of us didn't know each other March 11th. Mm. And we, we did have to come together and thread the needle exactly right. And, you know, do the digging to, to find out what our value is to the country. Audrey Fix Schaefer, it was so wonderful having you on the show. Thank you for sharing what you guys have been up to and for your time. And I thank you too for putting attention on this because the more people understand, I think the more active they can be. And it really doesn't take a lot to send that email at saveourstages.com, but it's, it's a great start. That's it for our show. This week's episode of The Culture Journalist was produced and edited by Emily Friedlander and me, Andrea Dominic. Our theme music was composed by an Austin musician. That's Mark Donica. Very special thanks to our guests, James Moody and Audrey Fix Schaefer. For more information on Neva and how you can get involved with saving our stages, head to our Substack. That's theculturejournalist.substack.com. <laughs>